All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan, and welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, attorney Addison Adams. Addison is not just the founder of Adams Corporate Law. He's California's go-to voice on mergers and acquisitions. Addison has spent over two decades dedicated to closing deals across a wide range of industries, including manufacturing, which is why he's here today. So, Addison, welcome to the show. Lisa, thank you for having me on your show. It's a privilege to be here. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing, not only in law, but in the M&A area. Sure, I'd be happy to share with, with your audience how I found myself closing deals around the country for small and mid-sized businesses. I started as a lawyer in the 90s in litigation, loved it, but also found that what I was running into was at least one of the parties had been harmed and there was a negative energy to any dispute. And I quickly transitioned, found myself working on the dot-com investor financings, which then quickly translated into mergers and acquisitions for both private and public companies. And the aha moment for me, the eureka moment, was when I saw high fives happening amongst the lawyers and attorney and clients on my side and on the other side. When you have a win, closing a deal where both parties are walking away with a smile, that's something that I wanted to be part of and to be focused on. It suits my personality, and so I leaned in in the year 2000 forward, working on corporate deal making and corporate deal structurings, buying and selling businesses, joint ventures, that kind of thing. It speaks to who I am. I'm empathic. I take in what my clients needs are, their goals, and I just love guiding them through that process. So when it comes to working specifically with manufacturing, so what does that look like? In what areas do you help them? How do you find them? Or how do they find you and take them through the process? I've closed a lot of deals over the years, and it just works out that most of those deals are manufacturing companies. And it may be because a lot of small businesses are started by a founder that runs the business for 30 or 40 years and then is and then retires and sells the business to a larger company that's looking to expand their footprint. And so I've seen a lot of those kinds of uh, transactions. And manufacturing and manufacturer founders and entrepreneurs speak to me personally because I'm very, I, I like the fact that there's a tangible product. I do working with my hand. That's, that's one of the ways I can decompress after a long day in the office is, is making something, building something. And so working with manufacturers, there's some unique issues that they have around, around their business that are concerning to buyers. And so primarily around like inventory valuation and accounting, and then around their different locations, different states and having local compliance with environmental laws, with employment laws, 
And it just turns out to be a an enjoyable transaction working with manufacturers. It seems that would also be difficult because in a lot of cases, like you said, you have the founder there that's been there for 30 years and either they don't have kids to turn the business over to, they don't know what to do with it, they want the legacy to keep going and they have their vision in their mind as far as what it's going to look like. And then you come in and maybe have to share some things that they weren't expecting with them. So how do you take something that's potentially a difficult conversation and turn it around and make it so that they're high-fiving at the end of it? It's a great question. Every seller comes in, typically, not every seller, most sellers come in, this is the first and only time they're selling their business. And there's a lot of uncertainty and, and fear about what could go wrong. It's expensive. It's time-consuming to go through the process. There's questions about, am I getting the right price? There's questions about, is this the right buyer? What about my team? Are they going to be happy working for a new ownership? What's going to happen to me? And that can even get worse when we start getting into the limit on liability, the personal exposure, the reps and warranties being given to the buyer. And it can be a scary time for any seller. And what I do is I, I comfort them by explaining the process, by explaining the statistics, by explaining exactly what they can expect. There is a familiarity, a cookie cutter approach to buying and selling a manufacturing company. Looking at it from the buyer's point of view, they always wanna know what are they buying. They don't wanna get sandbagged and surprised later. Mm -hmm. And from the seller's point of view, they just want to, they also don't want to be sandbagged and surprised later. And so this is what I do is I explain to them what's normal and customary, what's market. And I walk through the risks associated. And the fact is that the odds of having a problem after you've sold the business are low. Some things, if you have an earn out as part of the purchase price where you have to hit certain performance targets for maybe this two or three years after the sale closes. Usually those are fine too, but if there's going to be a problem, that's where you're going to see it is disputes about whether you hit the numbers or not. And mm. if you didn't, whose fault was it? Was it the buyer's fault or the selling owner's fault? And so this is what I do, Lisa, is I'm a trail guide. I'm a I'm an advisor, a trusted advisor, and I'm looking out for their interests. And I know that they have we're here for a reason. They have a reason to sell. And so it has to do with they're either tired of this business, they want to move on to another one, or they're ready to retire. They're ready to get on the you know, charitable foundation circuit. There's some something maybe they have a health issue. There's just there's always a reason why we're having the why they want to sell. And so I remind them of that reason and I help them get there. Yeah. So you mentioned that it's expensive. So we can know that, of course, legal fees are going to be a big part of that. But what are some of the expenses that maybe people wouldn't necessarily consider when they're thinking about selling their business? They think, hey, I'm going to sell my business. I'm going to get a check. It's going to be done. But obviously, there's a lot more that goes into it. So what would, what should they be prepared for? For a manufacturing company in particular, I think having solid accounting is very important. And a lot of times a manufacturing company won't have that. They'll have a small accounting or bookkeeper and 
once you start digging into the uh, financials, once the buyer does, let's say, a quality of earnings uh, review on the financial statements, they can be surprised to find out that they've been category categorizing expenses or inventory things in an incorrect way. And mm. if the purchase price is a multiple on EBITDA and these misclassifications or accounting standards that aren't being done correctly are result in lowering the EBITDA, then that can lower the purchase price. So, so lowering the purchase price is a huge expense, but then hiring an accounting firm, which I highly recommend that's experienced in M&A and quality of earnings on the sell side to advise the owner and to help prepare, but even before you get into under an LOI to just review your own accounting and finances and get them all in order. That's an expense that I see happening. I, I think an inventory count can sometimes be expensive depending on the company, but that's, that's just good to have, at least on an annual basis. And there, there is this issue. You don't need to hire an investment banker or a business broker, but they do bring a lot of value to the table and they are very expensive. And by very expensive, it depends on the deal price, but we're talking five to 10% of the deal price. So if it's a big company, $20 million sale, it's a, can be a million dollar fee. And so that's, that's a big number, but it's also, what do you get there? You get two things. First is if you want it, you get the opportunity to cast a wide net looking for potential buyers and then soliciting multiple offers and then engaging in an auction, all ma all handled confidentially, anonymously under NDA without the different buyers knowing what the other offers are. And this can be a very effective way to help drive the price up rather than just what most people do is they sell to the person that they know, the bigger company and they're friends with mm -hmm. the CEO and the CEO knows it's a great company and they say, let's look, let's make a deal here. And they do. And by the way, those deals work great too, but they may not be top dollar. So mm. the second thing that a business broker investment banker brings is a couple things. And there's a, some overlap with a good corporate attorney like myself, but it's essentially a buffer between the buyer and the seller to help smooth out the wrinkles and the negotiations over the details. And so that can be a an assist there, just the experience and wisdom brought by closing a lot of deals, mm -hmm. that advisor is, is helpful. And they can also be helpful. I've seen where they get into the data room, they help populate it. So in, in addition to making the pitch deck that goes out, they can also help on the diligence side which can be very time consuming for a seller. And sellers, speaking of diligence, and I, I hope I'm not running on at the, but the sellers always want to go through the sell process quietly, confidentially. And that means to their key employees, their staff, their customers, they don't want anyone to know until it's done because they don't want employees jumping ship. They don't want customers like looking for other suppliers. It, people have a certain amount of fear when of change, this change generally. And so that can really be um, hamstringing the owner if they need to pull on their team to, to put together copies of all the material contracts and payroll records and all this stuff, they need to bring in some help, right? They need to bring in, if they have a CFO, they need to bring that person under the tent of being part of the deal and maybe even more people in the accounting department. 
a wow. business broker and investment banker can help take some of that burden off and to help put things together as can an outside accounting firm. Those are two different ways to to help approach that. Yeah. So, I think that's it. Oh, those people can also provide a valuation opinion. So there's another potential sense. Yeah. yeah. To give you an idea well, what to expect. Yeah. And when you're looking at the list of some of the concerns that you sent over, we talked about the inventory value, valuation and accounting and tracking. But what about things like employment law compliance? You mentioned that you're doing a lot of this under the radar of what employees know. So what should somebody who's thinking about selling their company know that they need to do when it comes to staying compliant with employment law? So that's a great question. And when it comes to regulatory compliance with employment law, this is another way of saying, is there a possibility of writing a a penalty check, a payment check for a violation in the future. So the buyer is going to be reviewing your employment compliance to find out if you did everything right, because they're worried that if something was done wrong, they might have to pay for it later. Mm. And so that's the context. So the goal of the selling company would be make sure you've done everything right so that the buyer doesn't have to have that risk number one. And number two, in the deal, they're going to force the seller to indemnify them if there is an employment violation. And you would rather not have to have that problem. So this is one of the selling a business is very granular and employment compliance is definitely one of the granular things that gets looked at state by state, person by person. We'll need to, you'll need to give the buyer a list of everyone that's an employee, everyone that's a contractor, and they will go through whether any of the contractors should be should have been paid as an employee. They'll go through the HR compliance. They'll look at the paychecks and make sure all the right deductions are there. It goes, mm. and, and normally buyers bring in a specialized team to especially an HR compliance team that will just look at the employment compliance. So my suggestion is anyone that's looking to prepare this, their business for sale should do this on themselves in advance and get their own employment specialist to go through with a fine tooth comb and make sure that you're doing everything right, paying all yeah. the taxes you're supposed to. That's just good business, even if you're not selling, of course. Yeah. So what do you think? What are some of the other steps that manufacturing companies can do to prepare for a sale besides what we just went through with the employee employment and with accounting? that we haven't covered so far. Yeah, no, I think I think that there's two two categories in my mind. The first category is get organized, get your I's dotted and your T's crossed. And so that means you can actually have copies of your signed material contracts, go through your go through a mini due diligence effort and there these are standard outlines that have a dozen different categories, real estate, environmental, and just go down the list and because the buyer is going to do this and just do it for yourself to get ready. Mm. And then the second part of that is get a good understanding of what makes your business worth something. Think about your business from the buyer's point of view. Think about why they want to buy your business rather than just try to grow organically on their own. 
What is it that you have to offer? And so for manufacturers, a lot of times what they have is specialized employees. So by buying your business, you get a group of expert technicians and operators. You have a customer list. You have a facility or more than one facility. You have relationships that go back with your suppliers. And so thinking about how all of that is going to be packaged and delivered in a change of control situation is, I think, important. And also to think about where is most of the value really? And let's make sure that we've got that sort of nailed down. So if you're locked, for example, you are locked into a long-term supply agreement that's at below market rates with some supplier, make sure you have the right to assign that to the buyer without asking permission. Otherwise that might be canceled and the price is renegotiated. Yeah. So really the assignment clause in all your contracts that are material is important. One of the things that you can also look at is whether you have any proprietary manufacturing processes and whether it's been protected as a trade secret or do you have okay. any patents filed on that? So it's a good idea to, if that's the case, and that's not always the case with manufacturers, but if that is the case, then it's a good idea to have, to make sure all of your employees have signed an intellectual property agreement confirming that the that they know it's confidential, they know it's not theirs, they've you know confirmed that the company owns all of those proprietary processes. A lot of times the equipment can be leased or financed. So you can look at those lease and finance agreements and see whether they have a due on sale clause. Can they be included in the transfer? Yeah. So those are some things I think unique to manufacturers that are good to good to think through for, for a selling founder, for sure. So what about the actual process of selling a business? What does that look like? What should manufacturers expect? The first step is having someone to talk to that's interested in buying the business. And before you, as soon as you get that identified, then you're going to want them to sign an NDA, a confidentiality agreement. And that's so that you can keep this under your hat as a, under the lid so that they're not sharing this information with anyone else. And you feel a little more comfortable providing financial statements about your company. Then it's going to be negotiating an LOI and negotiating the LOI can take anywhere from a week to a year and a half. It just, it just really depends on how quickly you can get to an agreement on price and on the other terms that go into an LOI. And what After, is an LOI? So an LOI would be a letter of intent. Okay. And so it can also be drafted as a term sheet, but typically what it would say in there is it would say this is a non-binding offer to buy your business for this price, $10 million, whatever the price is. And sometimes it'll say whether it's structured as an asset sale or a stock sale, change of control. That's good to know from the seller's point of view, because if you're a S corp versus a C corp, that structure can make a big difference in your after-tax proceeds. It will also have maybe language around non-compete. Maybe if there's a three-year employment agreement afterwards, timing for payment should be covered, whether it's all paid at close or whether they're going to take a year or two to pay 10 or 20% of the purchase price. Is there an escrow for indemnity? How are they going to handle adjustments for the closing working capital? All these might be laid out as non-binding terms in the letter of intent. And then there'll be some binding terms. There'll be a no-shop clause, which says you sign this, 
you're not allowed to continue soliciting other offers. And if you get an offer, you got to let us know so that we don't waste our time on our own lawyers and professionals looking at your business. Send a long list of saying, just give me everything you've got about everything there is. And it's really breaks down to legal and financial. And so on the legal side, you'll have your corporate documents, all your minutes, your history, your, your stock ledger, your whole history of from beginning to how you got there today from a legal point of view all your material contracts, your licenses, your tax returns. Um, and then on the financial side, they'll want access to your accounting system right down to the detailed general ledger. They'd like to get all in there. Um, one, one thing there that's worth mentioning for a manufacturing company is this risk, which almost never happens, but it's the risk of the bad faith buyer. Right. And so the, if the buyer is a competitor and there's a fear, one of the fears is that they might, maybe they'll make an offer that's good, but not mean it just so they can get access to your employees and customers and oh. pricing, and then oh. use that inside information to try to poach your people and poach your customers. Yeah. And so that's the NDA covers that with, cause in addition to preventing the buyer from disclosing that information. They also can't use it for their own advantage. So if they did do that, then they would be susceptible to be sued for a breach of contract mm. in bad faith. But still, there can be gray areas. And so if the buyer is a competitor and if there's a concern that might be this case, one way to protect yourself would be to restrict access and anonymize some of this information. So rather than give an employee roster, maybe you number all the employees, number one, number two, number three. Okay. And they might say, give us your top 10 customers. And maybe you anonymize that too. Customer one, mm. customer two, customer three. Even though you're already protected with a NDA, that can be a little bit of, of a protection. So now side note, if something is if there is an alarm bell in your head as the owner of the business that this buyer is untrustworthy and might actually be doing that, then you shouldn't sell to them. That you know, yeah, you need to have trust. And if right. they have a bad reputation or you just feel like they're unethical in some way, then then my advice is typically the best buyer is not the one offering the most money. Um, you want to look at the one that's actually going to pay the money, the one that's not going to end up trying to cheat you, the try to sue you later. I look at it wow. as my job is, I want that wire to hit your bank account. That's step one. And then stay there. That's step two. Yeah. I don't want to ever <laughs> have to go back. <laughs> exactly. So, so what about the, the new regulations when it comes to selling a business that is uh, impacting manufacturers? One of the new things in the legal world right now is the beneficial ownership disclosure law that just went into effect January 1st. And this is called the Corporate Transparency Act. And this is a new national regulation and that is and there's also states that are passing their own versions of it. But what it does is it's a filing requirement. And similarly to filing requirements that already exist when you issue a security, you have to file 
some kind of notice with your state and sometimes with the and similar with a lot of states require an annual report that discloses the officers and directors of the corporation the financial crime enforcement agency fincen has established this new database to prevent criminal abuse of shell companies and what that means is that all private companies in the country whether they're LLCs or corporations anything that's formed by filing articles with a state now needs to file very specific personal information about the individuals that own that company and so setting up three tiered structures where you've got an LLC that owns a corporation that owns another corporation and then finally owns this corporation the law looks right through all that stuff and it goes right up to bob or jane at the top that's the actual person that owns it and forces a filing that is includes a copy of their passport their birthday wow. address very specific information and so that number 1 that went into effect january 1 but for all of your audience that already has, has a business you have this entire year before that filing is due so we have until the end of this year to make the filing but filings have already started i saw janet yellen made a comment that 100,000 businesses have already made these filings and the business does make the filing and it has to certify who the owners are and you have to mm. do a, a filing for for all the owners and so this is anyone that owns it or controls the company so they're trying to get as well basically the person behind the curtain that's pulling the strings even if they don't own the company but they call the shots and so for manufacturing companies there is an important exemption and and it's counterintuitive but the because you would think larger companies would have to make this filing and smaller companies wouldn't but it's actually the opposite if you're a larger company private company which they define as more than 20 full-time employees in the country and filing tax returns showing over 5 million dollars in revenue. That's um, a large company? That's how they're describing it. 20 employees and 5 million? Wow. Yeah, so that's right. just almost every manufacturer in the country then is going to fall into that. Yeah, not the small ones, <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's going it's going to pick up a lot. Yeah. And you have to have a physical office in the US. So if you have okay. all those all three of those things, then you're exempt from this filing requirement. Okay. Yeah. So that's good. And I think the idea there is they're trying to it's the shell company focus. So the smaller companies that have a few employees, the idea is they're policing money laundering and things like that. And wow. if you've got tax returns then your ownership is you're findable. You're not really hiding behind a web of companies. If you're considering selling your business or you're already in the middle of it, make sure you use a specialist. Use an attorney that is experienced at closing M&A deals. The deal goes faster, smoother, cheaper, and you end up with a much better result. A lot of manufacturing companies have a even a business attorney that they've been using for years, but that attorney may not have expertise in closing deals. And so definitely consider finding one that works for you i would say that i am open to accepting new clients you can find me on my website adamscorporatelaw.com you can also find me on linkedin under linkedin.com/n/addisonadams i'm the lawyer that closes deals 
and I would love to talk to you. Okay, awesome. I was just going to say, so you've already given your contact information there. So yeah, quick question. You're located in California, but do you are you allowed to work with businesses all over the country? Are you licensed or whatever it takes to talk to people outside of California? We do represent uh, companies in deals that are outside of California. In fact, we have a deal in Wisconsin right now that we're working with. And so most of our clients are have some connection to California, and that's how they find us. But yes, okay. nationwide. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show, Addison. It was a pleasure talking to you and learning from you. Thank you, Lisa. You've been wonderful. So nice to talk with you as well. Have a great day. Thanks. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.